Well, uh, this morning, I'm recording uh, the message again a second time. We had some issues during um, the service with our audio. I'm not really sure what happened with that. We're still trying to figure that out. But um, this is a re-recording of yesterday's message. I'm kind of recording this here in my office. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 9. We are back in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I began yesterday, and I will tell you again today, uh, there's a, an interesting story that kind of has been on my heart lately. Uh, the title of today's message is Jesus as He Is. And when we look at who Jesus as He truly is, that means we are forsaking any idea of who He might be, who we want Him to be, who we wish He was, uh, things of that nature. We're trimming off the paganized version of Jesus, and we're trying to see him for who he truly is. And that's what the disciples see in this passage today, beginning in verse 2. But I I shared this story with uh, the church family about Boniface. Boniface was a failed missionary in the 700s, and he was sent to an area we now call Germany. And in this area, there was uh, a lot of worship of the god Zeus. Now, by the time it got through Rome and in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, some some accounts call him uh, Thor, which would probably be right. Sorry, I said Zeus. Uh, Thor, some called him Zeus, some called him Jupiter. Uh, he's the god of lightning, the god of the sky. Baal is an, is an older name for the same deity, really. Um, but there was this oak in Donner's Grove where the pagans would go and worship Thor. And in, when Boniface gets there, he tries to preach the gospel. He tries to uh, share the, the news of Jesus Christ, and no one wants to really listen to him. Their God is Thor. And so in kind of a Elijah on Mount Carmel type of altercation, Boniface takes an axe, and he goes out to old Donner's Grove, and he says basically to the pagans, if your God truly is a God, he'll stop me from cutting down his oak. And so they begin to pray to their God. Boniface prays to his as he swings the axe. Now, there are several accounts of this story that are different. Um, I'm just going to tell you my favorite version, and we'll go from there. Uh, That is that he no sooner made a notch in the side of the tree with his axe, that lightning struck from heaven and, and split the tree into three separate parts. Some accounts say there was wind. Some say Boniface cut the whole tree down. Uh, Regardless, the, the idea was Thor was not as powerful as the God of Boniface, Boniface God being Jesus Christ. And so the story goes, the lightning split that great oak into three separate but equal pieces. And from those three pieces, Boniface built a pulpit, or in some, some stories, built a, th- a cathedral, and began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ from the wood of Thor's oak. So when, when we get into talking about Jesus as he truly is, we trim away at who we want him to be or who we wish he was, or maybe using the Bible, quoting scripture like it's a spell book, you know, like, like we pick the parts we like. And we want to stand on those scriptures just because we know the Bible says it, regardless of context. Um, what we're really doing when we, when we get to the core of, of who Jesus as he is, is we're sharpening that axe. And we're destroying these false perceptions about God. 
And so that's what we hope to accomplish today, sharpen the axe and cut down uh, the pagan trees. We begin reading in verse 2, and I'm reading out of the ESV translation. Uh, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Again, I've titled this message, Jesus as he is. This is one of those passages we have to examine. We must study it. It's a hard passage, if we're honest. It gets a little confusing. It gets a little weird at times. But all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all mention it. This is a life-changing moment for these three disciples. They see Jesus as he is, not just as he was, Not just as he will be, but the way he is throughout all of space and time. Remember, if they fabricate this story, if this was just an invention of Mark, who likely got his account from Peter, James and John would still be around to refute it. Peter later writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The truth is, when we get a glimpse of who Jesus is, when we understand who he is, we will never want anything else. In fact, it's the one thing I hope you take away from this. When Peter wrote that, he wasn't just talking about the resurrection. He was not just talking about the miracles. He's not talking about Jesus' ascension. He's talking about this moment in time when he got a glimpse of Jesus for who he actually is, and it changed his life. It's burned into Peter's mind for the rest of his life. Because when we get a glimpse of Jesus as he is, we will never want anything else. We'll not want to live for anything else. We will only want to live for him. Now we're going to unpack that statement as we go along in the text this morning as well. But before we dive into it, I want to make sure you notice something very powerful here. There are many allusions within this text to that of Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. The timing, for example, after six days, Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And we'll go back to verse 16 a couple of more times. The witnesses, there were other people present. Uh, then he said to Moses, come up, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. There were other people who witnessed God's moving on Mount Sinai. There are heavenly clouds, heavenly signs, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it. 
The divine voice on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. There's a transformation in someone's appearance. When Moses, 10 chapters later in Exodus 34, Aaron, all the people of Israel, they see Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And so there's also a fearful reaction like we see in the disciples. When Jesus speaks of the Old Testament, testifying or giving witness about him, this is the sort of thing he's talking about. The Old Testament speaks of Jesus or leads us to him over and over and over again. You see the prophets, the patriarchs, the psalmists, the scribes, the judges, the rulers, the righteous, they were all looking toward the day of Christ. They all wished they could just get a glimpse of him. Peter, James, and John do. They get with those men and those women in faith what they live for. These fishermen, they get to see it on the top of a mountain. And their lives will never be the same. Because of what they witness, they will preach like no one else will ever preach. They will never want anything else but to see the glory of Christ as they saw him on that mountain. The same is true for us. When we get a true glimpse of his glory, we'll never want anything else ever again, ever as much. And it's amazing how Jesus surprises us like that. I'm sure when they went up that mountain, they were not expecting to see this. <clears throat> Verse 2 again says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now we're not told which mountain this is, just that it's a high mountain. There's speculation as to which mountain it is based on the timing. In fact, Mark calls it a high mountain, things like that. Some people think it might be Mount Hermon or, or something else in the region. But most theologians will point out mountains are usually only referred to as high mountains because it's considered uh, tall or high because of its theological significance. In fact, we see this in Isaiah 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. It's not necessarily that the mountain grows, but its significance increases. That's not to say God can't make a mountain grow or become greater or anything like that, but we just don't want to read something into the text that's not there. The point Mark makes is that six days later, after, this, after the disciples confess who Jesus is, and, and Peter rebukes Jesus and ends up getting rebuked by himself, then Jesus gets alone with the core of his core group, three of the twelve, and they go up the mountain together to get away. Now Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, they make sure the reader understands it was six days. But Luke tells us it was eight days after his famous discussion with the disciples. So you have to ask, which one is it? Well, the answer could simply just be, who cares? Pastor Jeff, the point isn't the timing. Uh, other than the fact that it just makes clear Jesus wasn't traveling on the seventh day, probably the Sabbath. The point is Jesus goes up a mountain with Peter and James and John. Could be Mark is getting his information from Peter, and Peter remembers it as six days. Luke, uh, or Mark also as a disciple, remembered Sorry, Matthew also as a disciple, remembers it was six days. Could be that by the time Luke interviewed other people, they all said, no, I think it was eight days. And so that's why he differs. Could be that Mark and Matthew are making a theological point rather than a chronological one. Six days is the period of preparation for receiving revelation and witnessing the vision of divine glory or theophany in the Old Testament. Again, we saw that in Exodus 24. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. 
We really should also remember that the exact dates and timing of the events, especially in Jewish literature of the day, did not matter nearly as much as the theme for which the person was writing. That's why some events seem so jumbled between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Their emphasis on things would vary depending on what they were trying to convey to their exact audience. But what's most likely here is that Luke is not concerned with the exact timing, or he's counting the eighth day as the day they come down the mountain. In fact, he's the only one, uh, excuse me one second, he is the only one who um, will note the eighth day uh, is the day, that uh, the, the next day is the day of the transfiguration. Ah, I lost my place in my notes, I'm so sorry here. Uh, He's the only one who knows that the next day after the transfiguration, the disciples come down the mountain. Sorry about that. I'm trying to run the screen for those who watch this on YouTube and, and everything else all at the same time. So I got jumbled in my notes. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, so likely what Luke is saying ultimately here is that these events happen over the course of a couple of days. He's making the full event eight days later while Matthew and Mark are saying, well, the whole thing started after six days. But why go into that? Why, why even try to explain that? Well, I believe a pastor should try, as, as jumbled and messed up as I did a moment ago, uh, we should try and understand Scripture, plain and simple. Scripture is infallible. It's inerrant. It's the very breath of God. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy 3. God does not make mistakes like I made on these slides. Okay, I'm talking about that. So when things don't seem to add up, we need to go to our Bibles and spend some time trying to figure it out. Don't give up on something that's hard to understand. Look deeper. Study harder. In fact, your pastor should do this. I believe a pastor should approach Scripture in the same way a detective examines evidence or a doctor prescribes you medicine. You would not want to go to a doctor and ask him to prescribe you something without having good knowledge of what it does and all its side effects good way to walk funny or have a nervous twitch somehow come around. Um, you wouldn't want that. Or hives or some other infection that can come from misinterpreting something. You wouldn't want to prosecute someone either without having as much evidence as possible, having all the facts as best we can gather them. But ultimately, yes, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this high mountain by themselves, and he's transfigured before them. Now, Luke's gospel specifically tells us the purpose for going up this mountain together was to pray. He says that in Luke 9.28. But this happened as he was praying. Well, yeah, if your best friend, your, your teacher, uh, begins to be transfigured while you pray, that's going to surprise you, right? Transfigured, by the way, is the Greek word metamorpho. It means changed in form. That's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Most translations will call this the transfiguration. Interestingly, Luke does not use this word. Instead, he just describes what it looked like. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. He does not say transfigured, but he still makes it clear his appearance changes. Well, transfigure, that's an interesting word, and it's only used here in Mark, in Matthew's account of these events, Matthew 17, 2. And the Apostle Paul uses it twice. Once when he's writing to the church of Rome, Romans 12, 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorpho, by the renewal of your mind and by the testing 
and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And once more, when he writes to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The point Paul is making in his use of the word is that we are also to have a metamorphosis in our lives. If our Christian life looks like our life before Christ, we do not belong to Christ. Christ died to free us from our sins. He did not die to make us free to continue in sin. And he is that anchor point for our metamorphosis. He changes us. That glimpse of his glory begins our transformation, our transfiguration. But when we look back at his transfiguration in verses 3 and 4, Mark continues by describing his clothing. And his clothing became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So his physical features change. His clothing changes. What they are witnessing in this moment is Jesus the Christ as he is. In this moment, this is the same man and the same God who ate with Abraham in Genesis 18. This is the same man and the same God who wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 31. This is the same man, the same God who led Israel through the wilderness in Exodus 23. This is the same man, the same God who would speak to Moses face to face in the tent of meeting. This is the same man and the same God who met with Joshua before the battle of Jericho. This is the same man and the same God who watched Gideon beat out wheat in a wine press. It's the same man and the same God who promised a child to Manoah and his wife in Judges 13. This is Jesus as he is in eternity. The veil has been removed. The majesty, the full glory of God is revealed. And these three men get to see what all men, all women, and all children will someday look upon the face of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His clothes, radiant and intensely white. Only Mark says whiter than anyone could bleach them. They are supernaturally white. Some translations like Luke say they dazzled. The white was unearthly. It was as though his garments became the garments of heaven. Clothing promised to those who overcome. Like in Revelation and in the, in the message to the church of Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. John wrote that, by the way, the same John who witnessed Jesus in these very types of robes, who had not long before the transfiguration heard Jesus promise, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If we confess him, he will confess our name before the Father. If we're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of us before the Father. You have to understand the disciples are not just getting a glimpse of Jesus as he is. They're getting a preview of the eternity we are promised. Not only will we, be, will we be given similar robes, not only will we be transformed, we will get to be in the presence of his majesty, of his glory, as they were that day, for all days, forever and ever. Hallelujah. We could stop the message right there and just worship him. Praise God. The beauty that awaits those 
who've been purchased by the blood of Christ and the crown of that beauty is Jesus as he is. But Jesus does not stand there alone. Mark says there are visitors now, people that haven't set foot on planet Earth for a long, long time. There, appe- there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And Mark is the only one who puts them in that order. And he reverses it a couple of verses later. And they were talking to Jesus. You ever stop and ask, what were they talking about? Well, Luke tells us. He says in Luke 9, 30 and 31, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what's the, their purpose of being there? Just to make sure he's ready? To encourage him? It's not like he's taking a suitcase or has an itinerary he needs to be reminded of. They are there to talk about the cross. Now there's a lot of conjecture and speculation as to why Moses and Elijah are there. Some believe this is evidence of their role in the coming judgment upon the earth, that they are, in fact, the two witnesses of Revelation and I believe there's a good case to be made for that. Uh, Related to that, some people believe their purpose is to signify the end of humanity is near, that Christ's death and resurrection will set us on that course for that last, last day. Some believe that Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, that they are both somehow representing the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, and that Jesus is the New Testament or the New Covenant, and I guess there could be a good case made for that as well. Some believe it's to establish once and for all the deity of Christ. Both Moses and Elijah met with God on mountaintops. And here they are meeting with God on a mountaintop. But I want you to notice Jesus does not explain their appearance. Not so much. Mark, Matthew, Luke, none of them go out of their way to give us some symbolic meaning here. Other than the two greatest prophets of Israel's history come to talk to the greatest prophet who ever lived. Jesus of Nazareth. And if they are witnessing Jesus as he is and getting a glimpse of eternity for those who follow after Christ, well, then it's possible Chuck Swindoll is onto something when he writes, all three men appeared together and converse as normally as people meeting at a coffee shop. It would be too much to suggest specific symbolism, but this glimpse of humanity's glorious future helps us understand that God and all his people throughout the history of the earth will share easy company. God's people will have bodies, but they will be luminous, incorruptible, otherworldly. Imagine that. This is so good. This is a glimpse. Just a glimpse. It's so amazing, though. Peter wants it to last. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. These tents, or shelters, he wants to make for Jesus, Moses and Elijah, it relates likely to the Jewish custom of building booths or shelters. Uh, there's a festival of booths, a festival of shelters mentioned in Leviticus 23. I'm not going to go into detail about that this morning. But the point is, Peter does not want this to end. Now, the next verse is going to shed some more light on this as well. Uh, but Peter knew, if nothing else, he did not want this glimpse of glory to stop. When he gets a glimpse of Jesus as he is, Peter doesn't want anything else. Even though he's shaken because Jesus shakes us, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
All three of those men were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, I think commentators are wrong for what they do to Peter here. They're very hard on him. They'll usually slip in something like, Peter proves that when you don't know what to say, it's best to keep quiet. Well, I've kind of been Peter in a situation like that. I don't like awkward silences. And sometimes, you know, you've got to say something because you don't know what's going on and, and you want an answer. And if nothing else, at least Peter's being nice. The text doesn't tell us or insinuate in any way that Peter was wrong or that he was foolish or rude or offensive. It does tell us he didn't know what to say. He was scared. But what he said proves he wants it to last. You ever have a time of prayer, a time of worship, a time of study of the word, and you, you start and a few minutes seem to have passed, and you look at your watch or your phone, and you realize it's been hours? But if it just kept going, you'd be all right with that? Well, that's what Peter is experiencing. Some suggest Peter was thinking eternity was beginning in that moment, like, Zechariah had prophesied this is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So Peter's thinking of the Feast of Booths like that. Zechariah says, Zechariah 14, 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. But if that were the case, they'd need six tents or six booths, unless Peter's volunteering himself and James and John to sleep on the ground you know, under the stars. That could be a good camping trip and until it starts to rain. One recent commentator suggests Peter was making the case for three separate tents of meeting, that sort of tent. But Elijah was not around for that era of Israel's history, and if that were the case, wouldn't they need just one? You're not going to worship Moses. You're not going to worship Elijah. You'd go to worship Jesus. No, if anything, I think it's safe to say Peter's just trying to be hospitable. He probably figured Jesus had more to say to Moses and Elijah. They're probably having a very important conversation, and it might need to last longer. So he wants to make sure they had a place to stay and do their business. Regardless, he was speaking from a point of fear, a point of terror, actually. The Greek word he uses ekphoboi, and it's a very intense form of the word phobos. Normally it gets translated fear. It's where we get our word phobia. Peter is scared. He's shaken. Peter does not want the moment to end, so he tries to speak in kindness. And when in doubt, at least be nice. But Peter's voice is drowned out by the voice that comes from the clouds, saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is not the first time the disciples have witnessed something like this, if you remember. Uh, Peter's brother, Andrew, was likely there the day Jesus was baptized. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. But there's also Old Testament imagery at work as well. In Exodus 19.9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you. Here in Mark, the cloud overshadowed them or enveloped them, as some translators say. For the cloud, from the cloud comes that voice again, whether where it previously had has spoken directly to Jesus here. It speaks to his disciples. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, the Jews will not listen to him. The Romans are going to not listen to him. They'll sentence him to death. But if we are his disciples, if we have seen Jesus truly as he is, and we have decided to follow him, we must listen to him. 
He's going to be spit on, slapped, beaten, crucified, hated by the world around him, but he's loved by the Father, and we must listen to him. Listen to all he has to say. And if we understand biblical listening, we know it's more than just hearing him, but doing. But be doers of the word, James writes, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So God the Father is not just saying, ah, hear him out. You know, see what he has to say. He's telling these three men, do what he tells you. With that, everything stops. Everything goes back to the way it was. You could hear a pin drop. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And again, commentators are, are hard on Peter. People today would even say, Peter just killed the mood. Some might even try to say, Peter quenched the spirit. Peter is not that powerful. Peter is not able to change what God was so clearly doing in that moment. Sure, his time was not, his timing wasn't great. That's Peter to a T, right? But he doesn't have the power to alter what God is accomplishing on that mountain. No way. In fact, if Moses and Elijah are gone and all that is left is Jesus, there is more standing before them than they will ever want or need. Not even Moses and Elijah can compare with Jesus. Their gaze fell upon Christ and Christ alone. As Acts 4 tells us, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In a sense, you realize what verse 8 is basically saying is after all the sounds, after all the lights, after all the celebrities are gone, Christ stands alone. At the end of our lives, that's all that matters. Christ and Christ alone and our proximity to him. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Show's over. The shock has likely not worn off, but the disciples are left shaken. They begin to walk down the mountain, and what does Jesus tell them? Don't tell anyone. We have to remember that in this portion of Jesus' life, he's trying to be more private. Don't tell anybody what you saw. He said the same thing, ironically, to a blind man back in chapter 8. He sent him to his home, saying, don't even enter the village. The Pharisees wanted a sign, remember? This This would have been the sign. This is the big thing they wanted right here. This whole mountaintop experience. Back in chapter 8, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Here's the sign. Where were they? This is what they wanted. This is what they needed to believe in him. Right? Wrong. They would have hardened their hearts even more. They would have Try to take him by force and make him king. That is not the purpose he came for. Peter, James, John, don't tell anybody what you saw or heard on the mountain today. I imagine they said, sure, Jesus, no one would believe us anyway. Those three men, they went up to that mountain to pray, and they're coming down, shaking to their core. They've confessed him as Messiah. They know him as the Christ, but they just got a glimpse of him as God. They saw Jesus as he is. Their lives will never, ever be the same. This is the Jesus who will save us. Verse 10 says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
So these three men, Jesus' inner circle, they're still confused as to this rising from the dead stuff he keeps talking about. He's told them about a week ago in Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. They're still trying to process this, to understand it. Maybe Jesus said this casually, like, hey, guys, uh, until I rise from the grave, don't tell anybody. All right, thanks. And then they just keep walking. Maybe he said it very sternly. Look, don't tell anyone what you saw until the Son of Man rises from the grave. This is the, this is the problem of texting, right? You don't know the inflection or, or the way the person means the wording to be read. So we don't really know how Jesus said this to his disciples. What we do know is that they are now speculating about what had happened, what Jesus had told them was going to happen. Now, as Jewish men, they would have been familiar enough with the idea of resurrection. In fact, that's the, that's the separating point between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in any kind of resurrection. This, this idea is not new to them. In fact, it's an idea that's as old as the book of Job, which is possibly the first book of the Bible to have been written. Job says in Job 14, 14, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. Job knows that death is not final. Job knows, like the Apostle Paul, the wages of sin is death. The only thing that pays for sin is death itself. So Job understands the only possible resolution to sin and its consequences is a full resurrection. That's why he will say later in the book of Job, Job 19, 26, after my skin has, thus, has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Even one of his friends, Elihu, will agree with Job concerning resurrection. He says, behold, God does all these things with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may, he may be lighted with the light of life. This year in our, in our Sunday messages, we've seen around Easter time, the Old Testament promised the Messiah would be resurrected. Peter himself has just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah not that long ago, less, less than a week before the events of this. Yet they're still here having a hard time because this is not how, in their mindset, the Messiah should talk. Jesus, as glorious, as majestic, as amazing as he is, Certainly he doesn't want to die, does he? But that's what Moses and Elijah were talking to him about. That cross that looms in his future. You see, that's what has to be done. Jesus cannot be the glorious God they just perceived him to be unless he goes through what must be done at the cross. As the will of God dictates it must be done in order for God's justice and God's love to be carried out to its fullest. Verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Notice they did not ask him to explain the resurrection thing. It's almost like they're changing the subject at first glance, except they're not really changing the subject. Why do they say Elijah must come? See, they do understand that Elijah must come before the Messiah. They reference Malachi 4, which reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's likely they just saw Elijah. They might have tried to piece everything together, but now Jesus is talking about dying. But Elijah just got here. They're confused. Who wouldn't it be? It's not making a lot of sense at this point, is it? Jesus, if, if you're the Messiah, 
and you're glorious and you're awesome. And Moses and Elijah are talking with you and then they're not. And you're talking about dying again. Help us piece this together. Elijah has to come and preach or something, doesn't he? The Jewish people would see Elijah as a sort of herald of the last days. If Messiah is going to rise and reign, surely they're, they're in the last days. They've just seen it made abundantly clear. Jesus is the Messiah. He's clearly the God of the Old Testament as well as the God of the New Testament. He's surely the second person of the triune God. And yet here he is talking about resurrection. That's, that's going to mean he has to die first. But, but Elijah has to come first. So, ah, this is just, this has got to be just melting their brains. But it's not really a change of subject. It's a natural question to ask in this scenario. They're trying to piece it together, and they're not stupid. They need an explanation. One commentator writes, the nagging doubt implicit in the question is that if the scribes are right, and if Elijah is not actively working in Jesus' day, what ground is there for any talk of arrival of the eschaton, the millennial reign, or for believing Jesus is the Messiah or Son of Man? Jesus' answer affirms the scribal view and for clarity connects Elijah's coming with the restoration. The term restoration may be understood as speaking of that time when God finally returns to reign in Zion. So this is Jesus' reply. He said to them in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? We go on to verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, about a month ago, I kind of addressed this passage, but I, I want to flesh it out and explain it here. There's a lot to untangle, actually. Jesus is kind of mixing and weaving Old Testament prophecies here. Um, specifically, he's taking Malachi, and he's taking Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53. Elijah has come as John the Baptist. The verse I quoted a moment ago from, Val from Malachi, no doubt that is a reference to John the Baptist. In fact, the fact that he would be mistreated, well, that Elijah would apply to both John the Baptist and to Jesus as well. When Jesus refers to Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him, he's likely referring to Elijah himself who had his own trials. He was hated by a king who had a wicked wife. Well, that sounds a lot like John the Baptist, doesn't it? John the Baptist stood up to Herod and Herodias, a wicked man and his wicked woman. But Elijah does come first to restore all things. And Jesus directly ties that to the Son of Man in the very next sentence, that he would suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Both John and Jesus preach as prophets like Elijah. Jesus, like Elijah, has a ministry with signs, wonders, a call to repent. John the Baptist, we're never told he performed miracles, but he definitely preached as though cut from the same cloth as Elijah, if you'll excuse the pun, because he wore similar clothes. And he didn't flinch when he confronted wicked political leaders. But Elijah's coming in the great day of judgment is also alluded to in the second half of Malachi's prophecy, when he says in Malachi 4, 6, <coughs> excuse me, that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's, of course, re referring to the full unification of Israel, bringing the nation together, uniting them as their true and rightful king. And, of course, Christ restores all things in the end. We know this from Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. 
He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And from that day forward, from that day forward, everyone who has been in Christ, who has followed after Christ, who has accepted the grace and mercy of Christ and confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will see Jesus as he is for all eternity in his presence. That's our hope. That's what we live for. Now, I'm going to go ahead and move to close in just a moment. And uh, During the normal Sunday service, I asked the worship team to come forward, and, and we just cut the live feed and everything. But if you're still listening to this, I would challenge you to take a time of worship for yourself, individual prayer. Seek the Lord and ask him to search your heart and be bold enough to ask him when. When is the last time you sought the Lord in prayer, when you felt his presence, when you caught a glimpse of him and his majesty and his righteousness? When's the last time you got on your knees and just worshiped him? When's the last time you just sat and thanked him, not for what you have, not for what he's done, but for who he is? Will you do that today? Will you just take a moment and just rest in his presence and worship him? I'm going to close in prayer, and I thank you for listening to this today, this re-recording of the message. I pray you've been blessed by it. Father God, I pray that for those who are listening to this and watching this on YouTube, I pray you bless them. I pray this message has touched their heart, challenged them. Lord, I pray we seek to see you as you are. The Word tells us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them all you've commanded. And Lord, even the things that we find hard and find difficult, we must study and, and look at even more carefully so we don't miss who you truly are. You are Jesus, the Son of the living God. We ask that you penetrate our hearts today, that you speak to us, that you use us, that you bless us. But Lord, more importantly, that we bless you, that we glorify you through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions, and that we draw people to you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.